Hello, my fellow fallible humans. My name is Tanya McIntyre, and this is the Red Roof Recovery Show. Welcome. I am joined today by my husband, my partner, my best friend, Sir Lancelot. Thanks so much for being here, sweetheart. Nice to be here with you again. What Lance does uh, for me in my life is so much. I don't know where to begin. Let me count the ways that I love you. Um, you have agreed to come on the show as a regular guest to help me manage my anxiety because I suffer with a generalized anxiety disorder and depression and managing those heightened emotions and learning to regulate my emotions has been an interesting journey uh, once I started to abstain from my drug and alcohol addictions. So I was ready to pack up uh, this show. I didn't want to do it because I felt so much anxiety around having to do it every week. So you joining me every week helps me with that anxiety. Uh, so thank you for being here. You're welcome. And it's really strange because I would have thought I would have been the one being anxious. <laughs> I know. Isn't that interesting? Because I have a broadcasting background. Huh? <laughs> I know. Um, it's interesting how I ended up in that vocation, actually, because in radio, uh, it, it doesn't, I didn't really think about it so much because you're, it's only you and a microphone. So when uh, this digital age expanded to where everyone's attention span is shrinking and expects uh, little video snippets now, uh, then everybody's expected to have a vlog. So being on video is something that I'm extremely uncomfortable with. And you make that uh, easier for me. So I, and I also apologize to people who are listening <laughs> to just the audio. You don't know what we're talking about. Uh, but we had to start producing the show as well in video format for the YouTube channel. Well, you are just sitting in a room by yourself with a microphone. Yes. Just happens to be a camera there as well. Exactly. And you also bring a family perspective to our work with Red Roof Recovery, uh, Red Roof Recovery was uh, developed just before the pandemic as an addiction recovery program that we were planning to run in our residence. So I have um, a revolutionary idea around addiction recovery that it can be done in an immersive program one-on-one -on -one in one week. And we have been doing that business together. Uh, Lance is the chef and my co-founder and we're doing it very successfully. I hope to revolutionize the addiction recovery field because I believe that we've kind of bought into this idea that addiction recovery takes a long time. And the models of recovery that were available, uh, you know, starting back at the, the turn of the last century, uh, it was because of the military personnel, right? They could only get 28 days off of work. And it was military personnel who were making up the bulk of the people with the addiction problems. What a surprise. Um, they had to go to the hospital to start recovery from their addictions. And 28 days was the max time they could get off. So that's where the whole idea came from around addiction recovery, that it took at least 28 days. And we've not evolved from that mindset where addiction recovery takes a minimum of 30 days, right? We set up all these recovery models around 30 day residential rehab facility stays. And now they've just expanded the time. The 30 days doesn't work. So now they, they're saying, okay, we'll just extend it. We'll make it 60 days and 90 days and 120 days. 
And the group approach to addiction recovery uh, in a facility, in a rehab facility that's set up like a dorm and you're sharing a room with one or more people and sharing bathrooms and going to group meetings, it doesn't work. And there's lots of evidence showing that it doesn't work, but we continue to do the same thing. And uh, you know, in recovery circles, that, that, that's the definition of insanity. When you continue to do the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result. So I have decided that it can be done in one week. Who's my ideal client? Someone like me who couldn't take 30 days away from work. Although I did it this, uh, when I finally did go into a rehab, I had no choice but, but to go in for 30 days. But someone like me who is, has been managing or had been managing their addictions, uh, holding down of a successful uh, job, career, vocation, whatever you want to call it, uh, you're managing that. You haven't lost anything. You haven't had a DUI. Um, you haven't told anybody about your addictions. And you def definitely don't want your employer to know about it, preferably, or your friends or colleagues. And you could go after work Friday, check into a one-week program where you could have an immersive one-on-one -on -one experience with someone who was also uh, in recovery. And you could then be finished the following Friday. And you'd have the weekend to get yourself ready for, to get back into your new way of thinking, your new way of living, your new way of being. And it's been very successful because once people accept that recovery doesn't take a long time, once they get past that idea that the model of recovery of 30, a minimum of 30 days is old school, it doesn't take a long time to recover, then the success is forthcoming. That's been my experience. So I'm hoping that it will revolutionize the uh, landscape industry, although it's not a big money maker, right? When you, you need to devote uh, 12 hours a day for one full week every day, knee to knee with somebody, not a big money maker, not a great business model for people. So that's why people get pushed into these group boxed programs that don't uh, necessarily work for a lot of people. But that's another topic, isn't it? That is a topic, but I think it leads into, well, you wanted to go this week. <clears throat> I think there are two things that determine uh, the success of any program that you go into. One is that you believe that it's going to work. And two, the dreaded D word, the dedication to follow through on dedication and discipline dedication and discipline on what you've learned during your stay at whatever facility you believe is going to work, be it Red Roof or a 30-day program. If, if you believe that it's going to work and you have the discipline to do the work that it takes to abstain from your behaviour, then you'll be successful. Yes, I believe that as well. No. It's, it's uh, yeah, well, we're retraining our brain with cognitive therapy. That's exactly what we're doing. We're retraining our brain to uh, reset that mindset that is keeping us stuck. And that takes a willingness to do the work and change the belief and be motivated to, to, to change. I think I, I uh, have a 
conversation with the founding president of SMART, Self-Management and Recovery Training. Uh, that's the alternative program I found to the 12-step meetings that were not working for me for eight years. I was relapsing every year or two. And when I found SMART, uh, based on cognitive therapies, SMART is an acronym for Self-Management and Recovery Training, and the founding president of SMART, Dr. Joe Gerstein, he said there are three essential components for addiction recovery. Number one, motivation. Number two, motivation. And number three, motivation. If you're not motivated to change, then chances of it being successful are, are nil. So what's the difference between being motivated and being disciplined to carry on through? I don't think there's a whole lot of difference, except motivation is probably mm -hmm. um, more uh, mind Based. I mean, you, you really have to train your brain to be motivated and to recognize that uh, our lack of a motivation chemical known as dopamine. I mean, I think people who are biologically vulnerable to addictions, they're already running in a deficit in the dopamine levels anyway. Mm -hmm. And when we start self-medicating that lack of dopamine and then it, you know, we get, oh, this feels good because we're, we're now feeling what it's like to have a healthy level of dopamine, but now we are uh, pushing it to abnormal levels with uh, behaviors and substances that are unhealthy. So I think the dopamine level, our ability, inability to regulate healthy dopamine levels is uh, a key component is that we can then tap into our feel-good pharmacy within us. We all have a feel-good pharmacy living within us and we can activate our feel-good chemicals. Our, our brain is just a chemical organ running on about 80 different chemicals and we can actively do things to uh, boost those happy chemicals uh, those, and the motivation chemical known as dopamine we can do things like um, walking in nature, we can uh, meditate, we can exercise, uh, any form of exercise boosts all the good chemicals in our brain. And I think staying um, disciplined to do those do things uh, then keeps the motivation chemical running in a, in a healthy way that you know, we can maintain that motivation to do the do things. I think I have a slightly different take on, and as we always talk about, I mean, we have a, a different view on semantics now and again. We sure do. It's amazing. Um, um, they always say what opposites attract and we have so very little in common. It keeps life interesting. I think so we're, we're getting ready to celebrate our 31st wedding anniversary mm. and it, it doesn't feel anywhere near that. Uh, mm. It feels like. So for me, motivation is that that feeling that gets you when you have a goal let's just say it's to get the beach body after after the um the christmas festivities you want the beach body for when the weather gets so the motivation is you look in the mirror and you go oh God, this isn't going to look good on the beach i need to i need to go to the gym I need to go running or cycling or something to lose the pounds and tone myself up and that. And that looking in the mirror or whatever it happens to be, your thing, is the motivating factor. Okay. 
the discipline is that at the end of January, when 99% of people stop going to the gym, the discipline is to keep going to the gym. When you've lost that initial motivation of looking in the mirror and you may have, you know, you may be getting slightly toned. And as you put it in the, um, in the addiction recovery is in the past, you got to a year or two years and your motivation had worked. You hadn't had a drink for or drug for a year or two years, but you lacked the discipline to realize that because you thought, well, I'm okay now. The same way as the end of January, people think, well, I've done my bit. I've, I've, you know. And you stopped doing what worked. And you lacked the discipline to keep going. I think discipline is the thing that keeps you doing something when you when you've run out of motivation. Yeah, I suppose. That's, and again, it's semantics. Language is subjective. It is. Um, maintaining motivation is a big topic in recovery meetings uh, because we do become complacent after a time of abstinence, for sure, and we can fall into. Uh, those cognitive distortions, the unhelpful thinking patterns that, oh, I'm fine now. You know, I've had one or two or three or 10 years of abstinence. I'll be fine to have, you know, just one snort of Coke or one pill or one drink or one cookie or whatever. Um, you know, one go on the slot machine, whatever the harmful substance or and behavior might be for you you start to fall into romantic recollection after any time of abstinence. And I think that that's the, the place where we want to avoid. How do we not get sucked into that way of thinking that we're going to be fine this time? Can you expand on that romantic motivation? Romantic again, recollection. Yeah. The, rom the romantic recollection is that it wasn't that bad. Well, you it wasn't that bad. I was managing it just fine. And now that I've had some abstinence, I'll be okay this time. I can have just one. That's, that's an interesting take, honestly. Uh, yeah, because you've, you go, I mean, you went into a rehab facility. So obviously it was pretty bad for you to go into that. Mm-hmm. And I presume you're talking about people who, who have gone into and abstained from. So you must, again, it's this cognitive thing, isn't it? That the longer you go away, the more, the more vague the memory gets. But surely yeah, the more you convince yourself that you're fine. It wasn't that bad. That's why we call it romantic recollection. Again, it's a, it's a very, it's a very, very strange concept that it, it's almost like having, having a child and, you know, you tell them not to put your hand on the hot stove. And as we know, kids always do touch in the end mm -hmm. and they get burnt. They have to find out for themselves. Yeah, and and like, that's it. how much evidence, how much evidence do we need in our lives as people who are recovering from an addiction to know that there will never just be one. 
you know, lots of people, I tried to moderate my addictions for a long time because I didn't want to accept that I could never moderate. I could never manage. I could never control my intake of drugs and alcohol. I wanted to believe that I could. And I kept trying because I wouldn't accept that I couldn't. Well, that's, that's actually when I knew you'd, you'd stepped over a line when we were in Spain. The fact that when I used to say you might want to moderate your, your drinking, you, now whether it was true or it was, you were putting on a show for me or not, I'm not sure, but you used to seem to try to moderate it. And then it would start slipping back. Whereas when I said exactly the same thing, I'd said for many years, you might want to moderate your drinking. You ran up one side and down the other side. And I knew that you slipped past the point of that wasn't good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the optics were that I would appear to moderate it in front of you. And then I would drink and drug alone when you were fast asleep, mm. which is what most people who are um, challenged by addictions do. We do most of our harmful substances and behaviors alone. So now that you have just over four years on your well, mm -hmm. abstinence, what keeps you disciplined? I think what keeps me disciplined, a couple of things, actually, I, I have structured routine in my life now that I failed to have before. Um, you know, 12-step programs are spiritually based. Um, maintaining my spiritual fitness uh, was always a priority for me, but it wasn't enough. I needed accountability cognitively. I needed to analyze my thinking. I needed to recognize those thought patterns of romantic recollection after one or two years of abstinence uh, to intercept it, to say, wait a second, uh, let's, let's do um, cognitive therapy around this. And what I love about SMART, self-management and recovery training, is that they have specific tools that I can, you know, I'm, I'm building a toolbox in my recovery. And I don't even like calling it my recovery anymore. You know, we're on a recovery journey. I'm on a recovery path. I prefer to think that, you know, I, I have integrated this lifestyle and now it's not a recovery program or a recovery path. It's a life of discovery. It's not a life of recovery. It's a reframe for me that it, it, it's an integration of my life. It's my new way of thinking, my new way of living, my new way of being. So for me, that's where the discipline comes in. Having a structured routine from the time I wake up until the time I go to bed, I have specific things that I do every day at the same time. And I think that's part and parcel of what maintains my motivation to abstain. And of course that also, I think goes hand in hand with my becoming a facilitator with SMART because I, I host meetings with other people. So there's that peer support that I have, even though it's online, uh, ever since the pandemic, the whole world seems to have migrated online, but that peer support, even that you can access online, it has been a crucial component for me in my recovery, in my discovery. <laughs> 
Okay, so when you're doing your um, your meetings, which you do you're involved with at least three that I know of during a week, yeah. every yeah. week, and you're facilitating these. How do you impart the the need for motivation and discipline to people who are who haven't integrated, as you put it, into a new lifestyle, a lifestyle of abstinence from addiction and behavior well i will quote one of my favorite people dr david burns who is the author of uh my my one of my favorite books my bible it's called feeling good the new mood therapy it's the clinically proven drug-free treatment for depression uh it helps me a great deal managing my depression and anxiety he has a fantastic website feelinggood.com and Dr. Burns said the most crucial predictor of recovery is having a persistent willingness to make consistent efforts to help yourself. And I say that on my meetings all the time. Uh, are you motivated to change? You need to be motivated to change. If you're here from a court order or from a family nagging you just to shut them up, then chances are you're not gonna be successful in this program. You need to be motivated to do it for you, not for the court, and not for a family member, not for a friend, not for a job. So that's the key. Why are you doing it? And then the tools of cognitive therapy, the tools that I have accessed through SMART and other cognitive therapies, because there are hundreds of tools that you can pick from in your recovery. The key is to keep looking for something that resonates for you because we are all different. Find what works for you. Keep looking. And when you find that, do more of it. Find something that you will do on a daily basis to maintain your abstinence. So I think that's key. Did I answer the question? Yes, you did. And um, if I could say from, from a family member's point of view, like when, when as a family member, you know, when you say there are five people for every one person who's going for addiction, there's five people like the family go through addiction as well absolutely addiction is a family affair absolutely it's a different type of going through yeah mm -hmm. we're not suffering through the the pains of the actual behaviors or the use of substances but for the main part if your loved one's going through something like this you are suffering absolutely in a different way mm -hmm. and the discipline that i've come to realize is one, you have to realize that you have to look after yourself. And then if the person isn't ready for abstaining from behaviors or addictions, there's no shaming, there's no cajoling, there's no intervention that will work, no. just will not work until the person is actually ready. So setting... Yeah, that's the hardest thing for family members to hear is that there's nothing you can do to help them. So setting the boundaries of knowing that you can't help and having to look after yourself from a family member's point of view, you need the discipline to when you set that boundary to not to give in. Right. And I even discourage the use of the word boundary. So I'm a bit of a wordsmith, as you know, and how we use our language around 
uh, addictions and recovery, I think is paramount to our attitudes and beliefs around recovery. Um, you know, this is a biological, addiction is a biological vulnerability, but it's still the most stigmatized condition on the planet. So it's really important that we watch our language around addictions. Um, you know, I was never a substance abuser. I had a substance use disorder. This is a brain disorder. It's a chronic illness. And we need to start talking about it that way. So we can start melting away the stigma. So when I say, um, you know, you should erect boundaries with people, you know, we need healthy boundaries. Um, I don't think there is a healthy boundary. Just that word boundary is ultimatum-ish for me. It sounds like, okay, you either do this or that's it, you're cut off. So how about reframing that as a mutual respect line? You're drawing a, re a mutual respect line with somebody and you're saying, I love you and I support you and I have done everything I can for you. I wish you all the best. I love you, goodbye. That's a mutual respect line. But as we know, if the person is in the throes of addiction, mm -hmm. they don't normally respect that line. Well, yeah, but we teach people how to treat us, Lance. So if this we keep- saying, From a family member's point of view, when, when you, you come up with that respect line, you have to hold that line. And if the person in addiction steps over that line, you can't give in because it's easier for you. Correct. Yes, you have to maintain if, the consistency. Yeah, if, if one of the things is you say, you know, if you're going to drink, there's nothing I can do about it, but I'm never going to go to the liquor store and get you a bottle. And, then and I'm never going to give you money. Yeah. You, if you I, want food, I will go grocery shopping with you and we'll buy you some food. But, but I'm people, not giving you any money. But what people do is on a Saturday night where the loved one is three sheets to the wind and they've run out of booze, they will actually get in the car and go and get the booze because they don't want that person to get in the car and drive anyway. Right. So then we have to have unconditional other acceptance and consider that there's great power in knowing that the only thing you can control is yourself. So you need to keep yourself accountable for that and maintaining your mutual respect lines by uh, realizing that it's not helping you to provide uh, someone you love with what you think is help because it's not help. To, or for the people who are living with the person with the addiction, once that, those respect lines have been established, you need the discipline to follow through. Absolutely. Yeah, I need to stay persistent. You need to stay persistent even in your recovery discovery, right? Stay persistent with yeah. your structured routine, your accountability, uh, your do things. Just keep doing the do things. Keep doing the do. Do the do things. Do the do things that work. Yes. Thank you, sweetheart. We are almost to the end of our 30 minutes. Thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, you are an integral part of my recovery path journey, my recovery discovery. So thanks so much for being here. I've authored a couple of books I'd like to share with you. Uh, my first book, Mindful Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad, Sage Advice from a Single Father. 
Uh, I wrote this in honor of my father, a single dad who raised me while struggling with his own addictions back in the 60s and 70s. And I wanted, he was a remarkable man and I wanted to leave uh, a legacy of greatness for him because he certainly deserves it. And then during the pandemic, I started a series. I wrote book two, Daily Wisdom from my philosopher dad. And this one I set up as a journal. So every day has an inspirational saying and I encourage you to re read the inspirational uh, saying and then do some reflection on that. Uh, set your thoughts and intentions for the day. My experience has been that the power of words is very powerful and the power of the written word is downright life transformational, at least it has been for me. And I'm happy and grateful to say that both of my books are being carried by Finters in the Square in Canada's prettiest town of Godrich, Ontario, where we live now. So come and visit us in Godrich. I hope today's episode of the Red Roof Recovery Show has opened up some possibilities for you. Uh, reach out anytime, redroofrecovery at gmail.com. My wish for you is to always live fully, laugh often, love always, stay positive, and be mindful. Remember, there is great power in knowing that the only thing we can control in life is ourselves. May the force be with you. And remember, you are the force. <laughs>